Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is very, very exciting. This is a very unique, unique interview today with a man that I've known for since I was sperm. Bill Grunfest, producer extraordinaire and started as a stand-up comedian in an area of New York City that is near and dear to my heart in Greenwich Village at the Comedy Cellar. But before I get into my cold open, which as you know, I look at the person and I feel something and then I just start talking and the guests normally slip into some kind of a major coma while I'm talking, which is good because it gets them uh, prepared and their energy ready for a lulling interview for you people. <laughs> but before I, I go on, I just want to say that 2015, a couple of months in, the response has been incredible and the way you guys write things to me and reach out to me through Twitter and Facebook and all the social media or I just got another FedEx letter the other day. It's just been incredible how you guys take the things I've said throughout this podcast, like creating a problem or changing a pattern or the holy shit moments you should create or anything like that. I'm just so grateful to all of you and I can't thank you enough. It's just been incredibly humbling. We're going to have some great podcasts coming up. I'm going to have Norman Lear going to have Ted Harbert, who's the chairman of NBC Universal. We're going to have Judd Apatow coming up. A lot of great people. What the hell am I doing here? That's what we're going to ask ourselves in a few minutes. <laughs> no. So this is the story I'm going to tell. So 
for those of you who don't know or don't remember, I had a comedy club that I took over in Boston, in the Alston, Brooklyn, Brighton, Tri-City area called uh, Play It Again Sam's. And I had this comedy club there that I had taken over from a comedian who was a historic comedian in Boston named Chance Langton, and he was uh, notably a guitar comic who actually somehow, some way, decided to change midstream in his career because people told him guitar comics were not going to make it, and he just did straight stand-up. And he was a guy who was a really, really, really strong stand-up comedian, but for some reason, and he was my mentor back then, um, the industry never gave him the shot to do stand-up on the big shows, even though it could be argued that his comedy was perfectly suited for the late-night talk shows. But he started as a guitar guy and a cabaret guy. And anyway, to make a long story short, he was running the place, and he got taken out of there unceremoniously by this owner, Tom Maloney, when I was his doorman. And Tom Maloney offered me the chance to take over the comedy club, which I did. And for those of you who know, I started an initiative where Wednesdays was Bobcat Goldthwait hosting, Thursday was Dana Gould, Friday was a local Boston legend named DJ Hazard, Saturday was Lenny Clark, who I was paying $1,000 a night to in 1983, or some crazy amount of money because he was such a big draw. And then on Sundays, I had Anthony Clark, who we all know went on to do Yes, Dear and, and a bunch of other sitcoms. And throughout there, I had Paula Poundstone and Jonathan Katz and Stephen Wright. But I remember being in Boston. And for those of you who know the story, and I'm not trying to get sad here or bring it down, but I was married when I was 26 and I was doing this club and I was doing really well. And my wife passed away eight months after I got married. And when that happens in your life, believe it or not, at the time, you can't see anything positive that could ever happen from it at all. You're just, even when people are coming up to you and saying, hey, Barry, how you doing? It's always a reminder of what happened in that town. And in that time frame, I remember I was very down and I'd sit in these, this pizza place next door eating cold pizza and looking through newspapers and magazines. And I remember one day I was looking through the New York Times and I see a picture that, that grabbed me. And it was a picture of a, it looked like a baby grand piano. And there was a young man sort of standing on the piano or squatting on the piano like he was riding a wave of a surfboard. And there was a brick background behind him. And I was kind of intrigued and I looked closer. And it was an article about a young man who took a hole-in-the-wall basement in Greenwich Village, New York, and turned it into one of the most extraordinary comedy clubs in the country. And I was working, like I said, I played against Sam's in the basement, and the basement was a very, very unique place that had a name. And when I read the article in the New York Times, what was shocking to me is the name of the club that this young man 
put together in the basement of his establishment was the same name <laughs> as the club that I had in my establishment, the Comedy Cellar. And I was just blown away. And I was like, wow, this guy sort of did what I'm doing here in this place, building this place out of this little basement in this bar, pub, movie bar. And this young man's building this thing in New York. And above, like, the Olive Tree Cafe and next to a, uh, a music club called the Cafe Wa. And I'm thinking, wow, that's really exciting. And, but I'm in Boston. Nobody knows what the fuck I'm doing in Boston. Nobody cares. I think these guys are stars that I'm working with. But who knows when they'll be stars or how they'll be recognized. But this guy's in the New York Times. This is the biggest paper in the world. I just went through this horrible thing in my life. I don't want to be in Boston anymore. I want to go to New York. And I want to figure out what this guy figured out and start my own place in New York. Because if I can make it in New York, I can make it anywhere. So I take my 67 Camaro, I get in the car, and I drive. And all I know is the Upper West Side people have told me about, and they say, just get off at the 79th Street Boat Basin exit and drive into Manhattan. I get off at the 79th Street Boat Basin exit. <laughs> I drive as far as I can, and I stop, and I'm at 73. Second Street in Columbus, park my car, walk into this bar restaurant, and there's a bar. And back then, pay phones could take calls, and you could make calls out of them, obviously. There's the yellow pages attached to it. I look under real estate agents. I look up some. I call some. I wait by the phone. One person calls me. The first place they show me at 82nd and Central Park West, it's a loft. It's a studio, $935 a month. I take it. First, last, and security, I'm in. That day, I am in Manhattan. I don't have a bed, but I'm in Manhattan. I am going to do Manhattan. I look up a guy I know, Eddie Brill, who I know is a comedy club downtown called The Paper Moon. And Eddie Brill unbelievably says, Barry, I'm out. I want to go to L.A. I want to make a living for myself. I want to be an actor, comedian. I'm I'm out. I'm like, great. Can I uh, have a chance of taking over the club? Uh, sorry, Barry. I just gave it to Rick Messina and Tony Camacho. Rick Messina now manages Drew Carey and Tim Allen, but back then was booking comedy with this guy, Tony Camacho, who is now in Las Vegas uh, booking there. So I wait, I meet with Rick, and he says, you know, this thing isn't working anywhere, Barry. You can just give me my sound system back, and you can take over the club and meet with the owners. And I did. And as I'm doing that, I'm not. A, it's not like you have a smartphone and you know where the comedy cellar is. You just know that they're in Greenwich Village, but you're not really thinking. You're not really thinking clearly. You're just going with paneling what you're going to do. So I go, I make a deal, I start running this club, and then I start realizing as I've taken everything over that within 50 meters of my club <laughs> are two of the most powerful comedy places in the world, and then another 
less than maybe a half a mile down the road is another comedy club and then another half mile down the road there's another one so there's the comedy cellar on mcdougall which is one block and over there's the village gate which was a 400 seat place that was doing comedy which was literally like one block up in the other direction there was comedy U, which was i believe four blocks up on broadway and then there was the cabaret duplex four places competing with me and so i'm like how am i gonna make it and i named the club the boston comedy club the biggest mistake you do in new york city and i'm like jesus this is a lot of competition and I thought to myself, how am I going to get people into this place? And I remember to play it against Sam's, the owner had a great philosophy. He said, Barry, I don't want to be Mercedes. There's nothing wrong with being Volkswagen. You know, Volkswagen makes a lot of money. You don't have to be Mercedes. And when I looked around at my comedy club, as I've said before, it was pretty much the Cafe Depresso. It was like a really bizarre, unique place. I knew I could make it something special, but it wasn't like Caroline's Comedy Club or Gotham Comedy Club or the Improvs, you know, where they spruce it up. But I knew I couldn't get people in unless I was effective in getting people off the street because the streets in Greenwich Village was crazy. But I didn't have the money so I would hire homeless people. <laughs> I would offer them clothes and a shower at my place at 82nd and Central Park West. I would give them showered new clothes, and I would give them different colored passes, and I would give them a dollar for every pass they brought in. The passes said free admission when another person pays full price. And these homeless people were out there on the street. Now... The bad part was, is they were hanging out on the side of the street near the comedy cellar. <laughs> they were hanging out on the side of the street near the village gate. They were hanging out by the duplex. Didn't make people warm and fuzzy when it came to Barry Cats. They were pissed off. And Bill Grunfest was one of the guys that was really, really pissed off. And I had never met Bill Grunfest. And when I went over to the comedy cellar one time to hang out, chilly, <laughs> very, very chilly reception. Wow. Ice cold. Wow. And I thought to myself, my God, you know, I'm, I, you know, because before you get into comedy, you think to yourself, you know, everybody likes me. I'm a good guy. I, I try to be nice to everybody. And it was really, really chilly. And he proceeded to tell me in so many words that, you know, uh, what was happening with these people was unethical and that I should have them at certain places that didn't affect his comedy club. And essentially what I said was this, which probably was the wrong thing to say. <laughs> I said, go to end your street, Bill. Go to the end of your street at McDougal and Bleecker and stand there in the middle of the road without getting hit and turn around in a 360 and tell me what you see. And you know what you'll see, Bill? You'll see a cafe on one corner. And then when you turn, you'll see another cafe on the other corner. When you turn, you'll see another cafe on the other corner. When you turn, you'll see another cafe on the other corner. And what's the difference between all these cafes? Probably the waitresses and maybe a croissant being chocolate or regular. 
I said, look, I'm not going to put my guys in front of the door of your club, but it's a free country, and I believe I should be able to put somebody on the corner of West Third, where I am, and McDougal, on the corner of West Third and Thompson. But I will not have them ever go in front of your club again because I think you're right about that. That's disingenuous and wrong. And although he wasn't necessarily happy with me, we had an understanding, and I had a mutual respect for him because he was an amazing host, an amazing entrepreneur, and even more that I had an amazing respect for him was the fact that when he was on top of his game at the Comedy Cellar, and it couldn't have seemed to have gotten better than it was with John Stewart and Ray Romano and Alan Havey and all these amazing comedians working there, he decided at the top of his game to go to Los Angeles and pursue something that was totally different than he'd ever pursued before, which was writing and producing, and became hugely successful. The Academy Awards and the Emmy Awards, and also was a producer uh, many times over on the Emmy-nominated Mad About You. And I thought to myself, this guy did something that I've always admired, which was taking risks. And when you're at the top of your game, and when I was in Boston, I felt like I was on the top of my game. I had this comedy club running. I had great people. I had a booking business that was crazy all over the place. I was making a lot of money, and I just said, fuck it. I'm going to go to New York because I'm going to go to a better place, try to do better things. I'm going to try to be a manager. I'm going to try to represent young talent, which I did. And then later on, I decided to move to Los Angeles when things were going really well for me in New York. And again, taking the risk and seeing what happens. And again, with this podcast later on in my crazy life, deciding to do something from zero, zero and being able to sit down with the kind of guests that I've had and have the people out there be so supportive. And so my message here as I sit across from Bill to all of you is that take risks. Don't be afraid to ruffle some feathers. Don't be afraid to confront the people who are not happy with you and try to work out a balance to where it works for you and it works for them and you have a mutual respect. And I think if you can do that and navigate the proper way and keep taking risks in your life, knowing that you've been a success in the past thing you do, you have that example for the future to play on. So always look at the things you've done in your life that were successful and model the next thing you do after that, and it'll be much easier for you to be a success and take those risks and be successful. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. 
No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. I I am thoroughly inspired, Barry. I, I really am. I, I'm I am touched. I I've gotten some chills, some tingles in listening to this story. Uh, there are things that you have just shared that I did not know about your life. And I do remember that, uh, that, that whole thing, it was a very East coast, uh, kind of mentality that I think we all from the East coast naturally have. Um, and, but I, I, I am, I'm telling you, I am inspired listening to this. If my kids who are 12 and nine, both boys, which is kind of like, you know, raising gorillas, uh, if they heard what you just said, I'd be thrilled. Be absolutely thrilled. Thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you. That means a lot to me that you said that. Well, it, it's, uh, I am not blowing uh, any, any kind of smoke. You... I felt my ass raised. <laughs> I, I hope that I hope that people who listen to this podcast uh, fully appreciate who you are, because it's a little hard, I think, as the host for you to talk about yourself and what you've accomplished without sounding self-aggrandizing. But in the panoply of can I say panoply in the panoply of comedy managers you have become, you know, a Mount Rushmoreian figure. You know, there's Rollins and Joffe, there's Barry Katz, there's, in order to have survived in this business this long, and not only survive, but thrive with the kind of taste that you have shown over the years, because there are a lot of people, there are a lot of comedians, and you could have been involved with a lot of them who are not worth really bringing to the public's attention. And the the taste that you've shown right from the beginning, everybody that you mentioned in Boston, these are, you know, this is Mantle and Maris and Gehrig and, you know, sorry for the New York allusions. Uh, this is Yastrzemski and <laughs> Canigliero and, you know, trying to remember all the Red Sox that I can possibly, who baseball cards I had. 
Uh, so you're talking about, you know, the the best, whatever um, commercial success they had, which was up and down and all over the place. Um, but when you're talking about Lenny Clark and Jonathan Katz and uh, all of those guys, you know, these are the these are the people that you do want to be involved with. So plus, in addition to the do they know, does everybody know who you, who you have managed and continue to manage over these years? I mean, do they know? Do you people <laughs> appreciate your host? I don't think so. And I think that you need to to, to send him an email and tell him that you, you looked him up and my gosh, you didn't know who was sharing his brainwaves with you. <laughs> well, it means a lot to me that you said that. Like, I don't, I, I'm totally honest when I tell you this. I don't, uh, I know, I, I know my place, but I don't feel my place is where people think it is. I really don't. I always think to myself, it'll all go away today. You're only as good as your last deal or the last person you, you broke or, or something like that. It's a weird business in that there's a lot of people out there and there's a lot of people who are doing great things. And I, I always say, maybe it sounds self-deprecating, I've never represented Sandler. I've never represented Jim Carrey or you know, or Vince Vaughn or you know one of those $20 million Eddie Murphy. But on the other side, I understand what people say. I have been a part of a lot of things that people haven't been a part of and a lot of great television shows and I've got to produce a lot of television shows. I've got to do a lot of movies and I've got to work with a lot of incredible talent who I consider some of them to be geniuses. And I've been able to spot talent for some reason. I always say it's like the movie The Dead Zone. I don't know what it is. I can shake somebody's hand and I can just feel what the future is going to be. And I'm obviously I'm not always right. But I love the thing that David Janilari said in the podcast, and I always refer to it. He says, I'm only paid for one thing, and that's my opinion. And hopefully sometimes I'm right more so than not, and I'm not as wrong as much. But I want to give you the proper introduction, Bill. Oh, well, it's too late for that. No, for it's, God's sake, It's never Barry. too late for All my right, audience to ahead. get the introduction. So if you'll sit back, maybe try not to doze off while I do this. Anyway, let me give you the proper introduction. Okay. Bill Grundfest That's is a Golden Globe winning writer and producer who started his illustrious 30 plus year career in comedy as a stand up comedian started when in I was New York four. City. I was four when I started. <laughs> Prior to moving to Hollywood, he founded the famous comedy club that is, to me, the center of the universe of comedy for any comedian who knows anything about comedy or wants to be a part of anything in comedy, and that is the Comedy Cellar in Greenwich Village, which he started in 1982, showcasing then-unknown comedians like Jon Stewart, Bill Maher, Rita Rudner, Ray Romano, and Dave Attell. And it is still in operation today. And is it in operation today? When you go down there, you could go down there on a Thursday night and there'll be four shows. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> he also performed on WNBC AM 66, where he hosted his own series, The Wild Bill Grunfest Show, and was the permanent substitute for Don Imus in Imus in the Morning. In 1993, he wrote for the 45th annual Primetime Emmy Awards and went on to write for numerous award shows, including the People's Choice Awards 
and the Academy Awards on multiple occasions. In 1992, he wrote for the smash hit comedy series Mad About You, starring Paul Reiser and Helen Hunt, who won several Emmy Awards, and served as a story editor, then producer, and then moving up to supervising producer for the Golden Globe-winning show for seven seasons. Bill then produced the hour-long drama series That's Life for CBS and served as executive producer for the Richard Pryor-inspired series Pryor Offenses, the dramedy series X's and O's, and the comedy series Campus Ladies for the Oxygen Network. Wow. He's also well-known for directing the critically acclaimed documentary Richard Pryor, I Ain't Dead Yet. Please welcome my guest today, I'm very excited about this. We're going to learn a lot about the history of comedy and the history of the comedy cellar in the New York scene and many, many stars. Please welcome my man, Bill Grunfest. Thank you. Thank you, Barry. Thank you, everybody. No, please sit. Please. No, no, please. That's ridiculous. You're at home standing, for God's sake. Sit down. They're in cars all over the place. People are, please stop, sit. (laughs) You'll get into it. You'll drive into something. Sit down. Yes, Barry. (laughs) Well, Bill, as I like to do in these crazy podcasts, I like to go way, way back, if you don't mind. So we're going to go way back to where you grew up, the area you grew up, your family life, what the situation was, and then what was your first inspiration that said, I want to get into the comedy business? Okay. Well, let me say this. First of all, have you ever described your office to listeners? Um, I don't know if I have, but uh, maybe a couple of others have. You're welcome to. Well, it's really interesting because Barry's impeccable taste in comedy adorns the walls of this fine institution. And uh, it, it... whether it's Lenny Bruce albums and Rickles and and uh, uh, Pryor and you know just the, the comic relief and Newhart, these are the. Um, it's sort of like looking at the comedy periodic table of elements. <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, these are the building blocks from which all comedy life emerged. And uh, you don't find a lot of people in the comedy business today that are aware of these elements of comedy, the history of it, and how we all stand on the shoulders of the giants that preceded us. Thank you. Vote for me in November. Mm -hmm. Um, So to answer your question, uh, this kind of segues into the answer to that question because I go back to um, the early 60s when Newhart and those guys were on television and I was, you know, five years old, six years old, watching people on television that I didn't really understand. I mean, when you're six and you're watching, you know, Cosby uh, or... uh, you know, Jackie Mason on the Ed Sullivan show or people on Mike Douglas and that kind of thing. You don't really understand what you're watching, but you're starting to get it. If you're, you know, genetically predisposed to comedy as, as a business. But I, I was born in New York from, um, 
immigrant stock. Uh, my parents came over after World War II in uh, 1951, did not speak English, didn't have... Came over from where? They came over from uh, what we call the European tour. Um, uh, during the war, mother was in Siberia during the war because the, the Russians had put all the, the Polish Jews in cattle cars and decided to give them a tour of the entire country and dump them on the other side in Siberia. And uh, meanwhile, my father was in the Russian Air Force. Um, they let smart Jews do things in those days in, in Russia. And he was a bombardier. Which, if you know my father, is very unlikely. He was a very quiet guy who disappeared behind a newspaper sometime in 1973, and we didn't hear from him after that. <laughs> <laughs> and he uh, he was a math he was a, a a design engineer, and he would sit in the back of the airplane and tell me these stories. He told me, "Well, I'm a bomb. I was a bombardier." I said, "Dad, really? You're a bomb- you were a bombardier. You don't strike me as the bombardier type." He said, look, I sat in the back of the airplane. They asked me questions. Longitude this, latitude that. I gave them the answers. What they did with this information, it's not my business. (laughs) (laughs) And so he basically do the math things and then stick his fingers in his ears and then do more math problems. And uh, and then after the war, he... uh, you know, stayed on a train a little bit longer than he was supposed to and ended up in a refugee camp in uh, in Austria where he met my mother. And you met your mom in a refugee camp? Yes, in Austria after the war. Wow. Yes. So they really had nothing. And then they finally found a way to get to, uh, to the United States through Honduras. In, no, uh, not through Honduras. But they, they found a way to get to America and... We grew up uh, poor. We were grew up on 165th Street and Broadway. You know, you go through Harlem and keep going. People in Harlem wouldn't go to where <laughs> we lived. They go, no, for God's sakes, you don't go up to 165th Street. That's crazy. And what kind of uh, uh, apartment was it that you lived in? Was it a studio apartment where you all? No, no, we no, we had uh, we had uh, two bedrooms in a long hallway where you could ride your your bikes. And did you have brother and sisters? Or? I had one older brother who is. Um, uh, uh, four years older than I, he was the brains of the operation. Uh, and he is currently, uh, he's the one who really made good. He's the one, he was the, um, what can I tell you about him? He currently is a law professor at Stanford Law School. A, not only a tenured law professor, but has an endowed chair. I don't know why they would go to the trouble of endowing a chair, but apparently it's important to... I wish I had an endowed chair. Anyway, go on. It was... Uh, well, you have a well-endowed uh, chair. So, um, and he was on the President's Council of Economic Advisors, and he was on the, uh, he was a commissioner of the Securities Exchange Commission, and he's really uh, done and r- rather well. Um, so, so, you're in this, so you're in this uh, apartment on 165th Street? And, um, in a, yes. And so how did comedy come into play? Like, uh, what was the, what was happening? Well, we moved to, uh, we became a lower middle class. We moved up from poverty and became lower middle class and moved to Regal Park in Queens when I was about five. And 
because my parents had the wartime experience, and they did, it's not like they were party animals. It's not like every day was, ooh, how can we be even more hilarious than we were yesterday? And when I was five, it hit me. Unless somebody tells a joke right now, we're going to be like this forever. And so I was an early reader, and I was uh, uh, reading jokes on the back of an Archie comic book, and it was like knock-knock jokes. So I went to the dinner table, and I started doing knock-knock jokes. It was the only material I had. You know, when you're five, you don't have any material. You know, it's not like... Did you ever notice that when you're eating Cheerios, you get, no, there's nothing. When you're five, you're not saying, you never notice where the sock goes in the dryer, and then the sock isn't in the dryer anymore. That's right. Uh, largely because you have not yet noticed that. <laughs> Your frame of reference is, is excruciatingly small. Where did the sock go? I'm five. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go on. No, no, it's it's that is true. So... Uh, so I did. I opened with knock-knock jokes and got nothing, got absolutely nothing, but was not dissuaded. I felt uh, right then that the, the die had been cast. I, I was not going to go gentle into this good night. I was going to drag the whole lot of them into as much laughter as I could possibly wring from this group. And, um, and that's why uh, tough audiences never really bothered me uh, after that. Because I'd had the toughest, you know, you're not going to laugh. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up that way. So until I found my audiences that would laugh, um, which some might say was very small niche, um, that's, that's how I got interested in it. I think psychologically, if you want to get Freudian about it, I think many comedians, and I'm no different... Uh, come from uh, families where they were trying to make a sad parent happier. Then it becomes uh, professionalized. That was my situation. Was that your situation? Yeah. How so? Because my dad passed away when I was four. And as I think I've told the audience a few times, you know, I might hear my mother crying and I would get out of my bed and I would walk around the living room side and I'd peek my head in the kitchen and I'd see my mom doing dishes, crying. And you know when you're behind somebody and they're crying and their shoulders are shaking? And I would go up to her and I would grab her leg and I'd say, you know, everything's going to be okay and try to say something funny. And um, she'd wipe away the tears and laugh a little, and then I'd go back to bed, and uh, I think that's where it all starts. So that's an interesting thing that you said that. Yeah, I think that uh, most people, I don't want to say everybody, but but I think most people that get into this business and stay in this business, because this business is something that if you can imagine a life that's not in this business— uh, do that. <laughs> this business is only for people who literally can't breathe unless they're in this business. Um, and you can tell, like, like you were saying, you know, when you shake somebody's hand, you can kind of tell. Um, like I shook your hand today. I felt nothing. 
<laughs> I don't know what happened. I just uh, no. My wife has the same response. <laughs> just absolutely. All I felt was a well-endowed chair. That's all I felt. Anyway, so anyway, so tell me how you go from your young kid and you're making these knock-knock jokes to yes. getting to the point where you're doing stand-up comedy. Um, I started in camp. Uh, camp is is a place where back east camp. Here in Los Angeles, if you send your child to camp for three days, oh, what a huge event of independence the child is. Back there for two months, every Jew in New York shipped their children off to the mountains for two months. And maybe you got a postcard from your parents. Maybe you got a tomato in a package. You got nothing. Two months every every summer from the time I was seven. And it was the best thing they ever did because these people were not... It was clear to me that raising children was not really their metier. This is not really their wheelhouse. So it was really everybody on their own. And so in camp, uh, surrounded by other, uh, you know, middle class Jews, uh, there was always a reason. Every week there was a reason to write skits. There was a reason to put on some kind of performance. There was color war. There was boy girls sing. There was cats and dogs. There was this competition and that birthday bash, whatever the heck it is. And so there's always a reason we need another comedy sketch. So when I was, I think, I started going when I was seven. I think when I was eight, the second summer, I started getting involved with the counselors in writing these sketches. And it was like your show of shows, you know, but it was, you know, who's now a dentist and who taught me how to light farts. There we were in camp and he had decided, he had discovered how to light farts. And uh, he proceeded to regale us with this and then decided to do it on Nasheral. Which uh, we all, being 12-year-old boys, thought was very ambitious. And uh, he, he did, and in the process, uh, burned uh, the underside of his rather private regions, which we found to be the funniest thing that we had ever seen. In fact, I remember almost dying because I couldn't breathe from how hard I was laughing. <laughs> it was not till I later saw the first Richard Pryor concert film that I laughed that hard again. And uh, we were writing sketches and being in sketches, and it was, you know, uh, like being on SNL when you're eight. Um, then... When I became a teenager, when I was in uh, in high school, I started, well, actually, like in sixth grade, I started becoming more of a student of comedy, listening to the comedy albums closely, whether it was Newhart or, or um, Lenny Bruce was not my thing. I was not old enough really to understand what was going on there. Um, but Newhart, Shelley Berman and uh, Bill Cosby and... and uh, young Richard Pryor before he became the Pryor that we knew and, and loved after that. Uh, George Carlin, even before he became uh, counterculture culture George Carlin, when he was, uh, you know, suit and tie, Vegas, Al Sleet, hippy-dippy weatherman, that guy. So 
I, and Mike Douglas and Merv Griffin and Ed Sullivan, it, it, it became very interesting to me, um, words, because they were just talking. They were just taking words and making people laugh. There wasn't any special effects and there wasn't any slapstick and the way, although I'm a big fan of all, all different forms. Um, it was kind of like if rabbis had gone insane and started, instead of talking in ways that made you feel bad and guilty and morose and somber, they were basically stand-up rabbis talking about insights and about life. And I had, I was going to yeshiva at the time. So, which is, which is like a, a, a Jewish Catholic school and uh, with the same level of, you know, interpersonal humiliation and uh, bondage and all of that. And so that's where I got more heavily involved. And then when I was in high school, started going to see clubs, started going like the bitter end. I dragged my father to take me to the uh, the bitter end to see guys like Carlin and Robert Klein. And the bitter end was a 400 seat club that did music and comedy occasionally. And that was in the northern part of Greenwich Village on the other side of the um, Washington Square Park. They were, um, this was in the days before there were comedy clubs. The the improv uh, was the only comedy club, and that had only recently uh, become a comedy club per se. It used to be that everybody after, all the actors after their Broadway shows would go to the improv and sing songs. Which was at 44th Street and 9th Avenue. Right, in the theater district. And the famous John Lennon photo in front of the improv was right there. Is that right? Yeah. So... Um, so this is before there were any comedy clubs. Uh, so you'd have to go to the bitter end or the village gate. I went to the village gate to see, um, God, was it was it possibly Woody Allen at that time? And and they, I even started going to uh, auditions when I was like fourteen. My father was like horrified, but he took me. He. Didn't know what in the world was going on, but he took me. And and then when I was in college, I started doing uh, stand-up. Uh, first, again, part of a group in college, and then eventually stand-up in college at every Rathskeller student union lounge in, you know, opening for anybody that would let me go on for three minutes, five minutes, however long it was. I, now, were you I doing straight stand-up or music, too? No, I was just doing straight stand-up, and I was still trying to find my way. And I was doing it, and I was kind of building up a, a following. I, I went to the University of Pennsylvania and building up a following, and I was doing a show once— I think I was a junior and I was doing a show at uh, a student lounge and there was a kid who was a sophomore named Paul Provenza and Paul, uh, you know, I was already, I was a junior. He was a sophomore when I was a sophomore, he was a freshman. So he was like, and then he said to me, Hey, can I open for you? At the Hill Hall show. For those of you who don't know Paul, very, very talented stand-up comic and one of the best-looking men in show business. Absolutely. I would I would say that even if I 
saw him from the front. But seriously, um, he said, can I, can I open for you? I said, sure, because we had been kibitzing and hanging around and had become friends. And he opened, and I realized I was hearing a sound that I had never really heard before, which was an entire audience laughing at the same time hard. And I realized he had figured this out already. I was still trying to figure it out. He knew it. He was a savant. He was as good just about as good as he ever was, which is seriously good. He was that good when he was 18. It was, it was astounding. And I realized I can't follow this guy. But you had to. I had to. And I did okay. But I realized then how much more I needed to, to learn. And, and, and I did. I was very concerned in those days with um, being smart, appearing smart. And that's a killer. Well, it's a, it's a killer, but it's a great thing to aspire to. So, so how do you get to New York City? How do you find the space that turns into the comedy cellar? Tell us that story. Well, uh, I, I, I moved to New York from Boston where I, I started a, a, a club. I have – you and I are birds of a feather. Um, I started a place um, in the back of a restaurant, which is all where all great comedy clubs really need to start, in the back, on top, underneath, someplace. Um, there was a Western chuck wagon-themed restaurant called the Springfield Street Saloon. And big wagon wheels, and they'd serve you beans at long tables. This it was in Boston. In Boston. It was crazy. It later became the Ding Ho. Do you know something I should tell you? That yes. I'll tell our audience. Um, the Ding Ho was probably the comedy cellar of Boston in the sense that it was a respected place. The difference being is that it was a Chinese restaurant <laughs> that was converted into a comedy club at night. And it was owned by a guy who spoke little or no English, Shun Lee. And Lenny Clark, who hosted the Wednesday night shows there, the open mic, would always open up the open mic and say, you know, you're probably wondering how I got the show here uh, at the fabulous Ding Ho. Well, I, I took a job as a dishwasher here uh, at Shun Lee's restaurant. I really didn't know how to operate the dishwasher. And there's that flap that goes down when the, you know, you put the dishes through and I didn't put the flap through and the hot water sprayed me in the face. And I went, ah, and Shun Lee said, Oh, you a funny, funny motherfucker. <laughs> you host Wednesday night, open mic night here for us at Ding Ho. And so I actually, when it closed down, I actually got the sign of the Ding Ho, the huge electronic sign and I hid it in my crawl space of my basement apartment in Alston, Massachusetts. And it took me like three hours to get it in there. And I left that apartment probably 25 years ago, and it's probably still there in that crawl space. But go on. I'm sorry. Well, I lived in Brighton and um, right next to right next to Alston. And uh, so I started I started uh, that place. And then when I moved to New York, 
I started a place on 72nd Street in the back of a barbecue joint, uh, the Dallas Jones Barbecue. And they had a little garden room. And I was booking guys like Ron Darian and Jonathan Solomon and Bill Maher and I think Rita, Rita Rudner, in this little 50-seat garden room and uh, realized that this was not going to be anything important. So I, I left that and I was looking for a place and I called Dom Irera. I was talking to people who might know. I, and I said, what do you think I should open? And he said, have you been to the village? So really I owe it to, all to Dom. And I went down to the village and I saw, oh my God, this, this teeming throngs of humanity walking around down McDougal Street and down Bleecker Street just looking for something to do. People with cash money in their pocket looking for something to do. There was folk clubs. There were, you know, coffee houses. I said, there, there's not a comedy club here. And of course, anytime you try something new, you get hit with the following. Whether you're inventing a light bulb or starting a comedy club or inventing fire, uh, somebody well-meaning, usually related to you, will say some version of, if starting a comedy club in Greenwich Village was such a good idea, wouldn't somebody else have already done it? Which is like the, the last line of defense of the status quo. So, to which I always say, no. Because somebody had to think of it first, and it's me. So I wore out a couple pairs of shoes just looking for every possible nook and cranny. And the thing about the Comedy Cellar is that it was a non-obvious location because there was no sign. It looked like there were these chains and there were, you know, people homeless people doing untoward things down at the bottom of the steps. And uh, it was not, you know, the inviting place that it is now. You had to be willing to brave through a lot of things to find out there even was something down there. So fortunately, I had a couple of reviews from the Upper West Side Club. And when I went to the comedy cell and I saw the place, I walked down the, the stairs and I realized this is it. Just like when you shake hands with somebody and you go, okay, this is it. And we're going to talk about this for a second. For those yes. of you who don't know about the comedy cellar. Yes. That this is what's very strange of it is something that you can't even explain. The Comedy Cellar, if there was unbiased opinion of like a hundred people randomly on the street, you had them just walk into the place during the day or night and just walk around and look at the chairs, look at the tables, look at the carpet, look at the ceiling that literally is six feet nine high. <laughs> Look at the only bathrooms in the place at the back that service not only the comedy club, but the upstairs restaurant that literally 
a a Arco station gas station bathroom on the Massachusetts Turnpike that has a key attached to a truck tire would be cleaner than these bathrooms. And not only that, the stage is maybe four inches high. If you're Brad Garrett, you're not performing there unless you're leaning over. Okay. There's only one row of tables and chairs and f- separating you from a walkway <laughs> where people are walking back and forth to the bathroom from upstairs over and over and over again. Yet this place is like a deity, is like hallowed ground. This is like Israel or whatever you want to call it. It's like Moses parted the Red Seas and said, let there be comedy. And this is the place. And everybody who's anybody wants to play there. And it's a unique international audience that's really special. But if you had to say, is this an ideal comedy club? Is this the place that you would build and you put a blueprint together? (laughs) You would say, absolutely not. No fucking way am I going to invent the place where people are walking back in front of the most of the audience in front of me while I'm performing and a bathroom that literally looks like it was built in 1957. <laughs> because it was built in 1942. Um, you're absolutely right, and yet I was absolutely certain about the place. And your, your description of the bathrooms <laughs> is spot on. But be that as it may, there's so much more to the to the place. So when I came downstairs that very first time and I saw the exposed brick wall and the wood paneling and the low ceilings, I realized this is, to me this was the quintessential comedy room that that the laughs would bounce off of the walls and off of the ceilings. But how many had you looked at before you found the comedy cellar? Well, I looked at a lot of a lot of rooms. Um, I go into the Olive Tree Cafe, which is a great place. It still has the best burgers in the world um, and the best borscht. And I went into the Olive Tree Cafe, and they told me the bathrooms were downstairs. So I went down uh, the stairs, and it was it really was like... You know how the music plays in the, mu- in the mm-hmm. movie? when ah, I felt I heard the angels... Sing. I walked into this place. And what was happening down there during the day and night? Well, nothing was happening during the day. Uh, at night, they were using it as a Brazilian piano bar. I guess really wanted a lock on that, you know, Brazilian piano bar market. If, if opening a Brazilian piano bar was such a good idea, don't you think somebody else would have done it? So... And so the way I started it was I, I went to Manny Dorman, who owned uh, the Olive Tree and the, the downstairs. The late Manny Dorman, who the, was an amazing man. And, a, and a, an amazing guy. And his son, Noam, um, who in, inherited not just, you know, the, the, the business, you know, he has done what is really unusual, which is most kids, when they inherit something, they drive it into the ground. He has made it more successful than it has ever been. Incredible. It is, it, He's it's done an, an amazing job. An amazing job. And, and, and you don't see that. And I, I think that um, he and I both learned a lot from Manny, uh, who, who taught us things like, if you give good, you get good. 
really simple sort of paternal wisdom like that. He, so, so take me through your meeting with Manny. So I meet with Manny. So I, 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 I met with Manny. <laughs> Sorry. I was, I, so I met with Manny. I asked for the, is the owner here? And they, he fortunately was. And I had the reviews Xeroxed from the Uptown Club. For those of you who don't know, uh, that means copied. Copied, yes, yes. And then I mimeographed them. And then he smelled them. And then I smelled them. Then chiseled them in stone, and I'd carry those. Um, and I said something to him about, I'd like to open a comedy club downstairs. I know you have a piano bar that starts at, at, uh, when does it get busy? And he told me, uh, gets busy about 10 o'clock. So I was always looking for the win-win situation. I said, okay, so it gets busy at 10 o'clock. How about if I do one comedy show a night, Thursday, Friday, Saturday at eight o'clock and we'll be out of there by 10 o'clock. And it won't cost you anything. I'll pay for the acts and I'll pay for the promotion. And you get the uh, food and beverage. Which is what I did in Boston and in my club in New York. Exactly. And it's called a four wall deal where the place gets the bar and the concessions and you get the door. And um, occasionally you have to pay a little rent, but most of the time you don't. Yes, and it's a win-win situation. There's no way for him to lose. He can only win. So as he, he told me in later years, he said, I didn't really know what you were talking about, but I kind of liked your energy and you had this review and I said, there's no way for me to get hurt. And so let's try it. So 1982, you start. Take me back for you booking your first Thursday, Friday and Saturday. Who did you call and what happened that weekend? I'll tell you. I think the first guys that we had were... Now you say we had, but it was you It was It was me, yeah. I, I say we, it makes me feel less lonely. It's the royal we. Okay. You know, I mean, right. comedy is such a lonely business. You stand up by yourself. It's all by yourself, you know, and it's... And the only reason I started it was because I didn't want to be one of these road rats. I wanted to have a place where uh, I could I could work and and also build a business at the same time. So I think we started with uh, Gabe Abelson. Gabe Abelson, of course. And uh, Jonathan Solomon. Jonathan Solomon did Letterman many, many times, a really brilliant comic. A wonderful comic. Uh, Gabe's great. He became a writer on The Letterman Show, I believe. Yes, yes. Uh, Ron Darian. Ron Darian was a great comic. He was mostly worked on Long Island, I believe, or in that area there more than he did in New York City. Yeah. Th these are all true things that you're saying. Um, and I think Bill Maher. Bill Maher, never heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think those four guys, I think that was our show. And so tell me how many people showed up on opening night and on Friday night and on Saturday night that first weekend. It was the opening night. There were maybe, a, I don't know, 15 people. Um, and then maybe 25 on Friday and maybe 30 on Saturday. And what were you paying the comedians and what were you charging at the door? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you. Let me tell you what tipped Manny and I off that we were on to something good. On Saturday, we already had repeat business from Thursday. 
And we looked at each other, both realizing the importance of what we had just discovered, that people so liked this place that they came back again and brought their friends. And I think that was the, the last time, well, maybe six months later was the last time that we actually paid for any advertising. The cheapest way to acquire a new customer is to do a good job. And it's always been about repeat business and about word of mouth. We've never, l- listen to me, I'm still saying we as though I were as actively involved as I used to be, but it's it's kind of like um, your college, you know, you feel an affinity and a loyalty and a familial relationship. We're still, every time I go back, it's still a wonderful experience. Now, when did you know really that... Holy shit. We have something extraordinary here and we're never looking back. Uh, about six, eight months. What happened to give you that feeling? People started coming. Uh, like in, in droves, we, we fired the uh, poor Billy Blanco, uh, the Brazilian piano player. We fired him. Um, and we started doing two shows on Saturday, 8 and 10. Uh, now I think they do 11 <laughs> um, and uh, and then did two shows on Friday and then one show, one long show. And you were hosting each, every show. I was hosting every show. And, and, and let me say this. What were you paying the comedians? Oh, during the week we were paying, we started out paying $15 a set during and the how week. How many comedians on, on a Thursday, which was the longer show? Six. Six. And on the weekends, what'd you pay? 35. God, and you had four comedians in you. Right. Got it. And you were charging what at the door? Uh, it was $5 during the week and yeah, starting it out, maybe eight, $8. So it's safe to say, uh, if I could be so bold yes. here, that when you started and you were hosting and this was your business... It was safe to say, even though it was like a 150-seat club, that you were probably doing between 700 and 1,000 people a week in its heyday, maybe as much as 1,500 people a week if you were doing multiple shows. Mm-hmm. And so if you're averaging around $7 a person and you're paying out probably around uh, three, 400 a week for talent and no advertising and maybe a door person, you were doing pretty well. We were doing well. I don't think the numbers were... Oh, 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 oh. I was doing... Yes, I'm not going to... to, um, I'm not going to downplay that we were doing well, that I was doing well, Manny was doing well. Um, And we went to 50 on the weekends, and we went to 60 on the weekends, and we went to 75 why, I remember why you weekends. went to 60 and 75, and you were mad at me about that, too. Because you were paying. Because I went to 60 and 75. Yes. And, but I think that that was the right thing for you to do, and it was the right thing for us to do. I had to do it. I had to compete, because you guys were in a situation where you were telling comedians, look, you know, if you work at our club, don't bother working for Barry. And so it was like, I had to, I had to compete. Well, let me let me say this about that. It wasn't you. It was more Manny. A little bit. Uh, and, <laughs> a little, and, and, a little and, bit. You're like De Niro. 
and they that is that has stopped. I mean, there's there's even a club down the street on McDougal Street that does comedy. Doesn't matter anymore. It's all over. Uh, it's all over but the shouting there. So let's keep going because I don't want to. But I want to tell me about. Okay. I want you to tell me about. Uh, normally, I I I, I want to ask you you know about your producing career as well. Yes. But I want to I want you to tell me. Um, you know, if all your crazy stories that you had to put together at the comedy cellar, and and you were writing uh, your book or your memoir or whatever. Tell our audience like one or two stories that are just when you were there that no one would believe. You know, they're just incredible, whether it might be a celebrity popping in and doing stand up or it was something that happened with a group of guys or some unique thing that happened that was just uh, really special. Well, well, first of all, Robin Williams was the first celebrity to drop in. And and when that happened, that was really the stamp of approval uh, that that let the rest of the comedy community know. Were you hosting that night? Yeah, yeah. So what happened? I was standing on stage, and uh, when you come into the comedy cellar, there's a, a, a little sort of foyer, and there's a little old hanging lamp, a little fake Tiffany kind of lamp. And if you stand under the lamp, then if you're on stage seeing you can see who's who the next guy is. You can see who who's standing under the lamp anyway. And I'm do waxing lyrical about whatever it was, you know, singing Gilligan's Island or whatever idiotic thing I was doing. And I look over and there's Robin Williams. And I, I motion to him like, Do you wanna come on? Do you wanna and just like a little do you wanna come on? And he went, Yes. He <laughs> shook his head, yes. And I said and then I underplayed it. I said to the audience, I said, um, well, um, the next guy uh, coming up, a very funny guy. Uh, you may have seen him on uh, Johnny Carson's show. You may have seen him on this and, uh, and on that. Um, I, I think, you know, he's going to do really, really well. Uh, would you please welcome Robin Williams? And there was a pause in the room because everybody thought that I was full of shit. Everybody thought I was just lying to them. This was just, uh, he's just saying this and, well, who's going to come on stage? I don't know, but it's not going to be Robin Williams because it's somebody. And up comes Robin Williams. And the place just explodes. Oh, my God. They couldn't believe it, especially because I didn't make a big thing out of it. I sold it the other direction. Which if you were a stand-up comic and you're hosting shows anywhere in the country and any comedian comes in... Don't ask them how they'd like to be introduced. You, you introduce them one way and one way only. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Robin Williams. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jerry Seinfeld. That's the only way they care about being introduced. Yeah, yeah. So he he went on and he was very much in his element and did great and it was watching one of those magical events where this is what people used to come to these comedy clubs for. They'd come, you know, all the time hoping somebody like that would drop in. But it was also the baptism or the circumcision, if you will. 
for the club to really put it on the map and say it has this imprimatur that Robin drops in. And he was he came the next night also. Um, he was in town for something. I forget what. Um, but he was so quiet and self-effacing. And if you didn't notice him standing in the hallway, he was never going to come up to you. So you'd have to be aware of it. So that was, that was one story. Then there was the other story of how I got, I got punched. That was a good story. Do you want to hear that story? Of course. (sighs) And it was by Robin Williams. It's by... Rita Rudner, she just, (laughs) she looks meek, but wow. Uh, There was uh, a guy who's uh, better half, let's call her that, uh, simply would not stop, uh, not just talking, but um, heckling. And in those days... I had morphed from a comic who wanted to deal with hecklers by showing he was smarter and better and faster and quicker, which is your go-to. It's where you start as a comic when you're dealing with hecklers. You want to show that you are, that you own the stage. And that's where I started. But I, I, I morphed into something else, which is whenever anybody would, would heckle, um, I would say, well, sir, you must have had a very difficult day. I mean, here you are in public with everyone, and and you feel the need to make a comment like that. And, um, you know, I've been through this kind of thing before, and I've seen a lot of heckling. Let me give you some pointers. And I would get off stage, leave the mic on stage. I'd get off stage, and I'd go sit with the guy. And I'd talk loud so that everybody could hear me. And I'd say, okay, Now, if you really want to heckle, try something like this. And then I would yell the most vile, disgusting things possible at the now empty stage. And everybody would laugh. And then I'd run back up onto the stage and I would say, why, sir, there's no reason to speak in such a, I can't believe this kind. And then I would run back and sit next to him again and yell more vile, disgusting things at the, and then come back. And by this time, the guy had become my best friend. The whole the pin had been removed from the grenade, everything, and and the audience because that's really what you're you mean. Concerned. The pin was put back. Was in put back grenade. in the grenade, and the audience was relieved because now they knew they knew the level of control that existed in in the room, and that's really what you want. You want the audience to be uh, not feel that their evening is about to be threatened by an idiot. So um, this guy's wife would not stop. And my uh, piano player uh, at the time, Charles Zucker, a very funny guy, um, said, I don't know if I can say this on a podcast. Can I use this language? You can say anything you want. He said, "Um, would somebody please stick a dick in that mouth? (laughs) For some reason, the man took exception to this phraseology. Charles and I at the time both had curly hair. My hair is gone. Charles still has his. And we both had glasses. And we were both Jews. So when they left through the hallway, Charles and I happened to be there. And the guy thought that I had said it. So he came after me physically. 
And while he is literally choking me with his hand on his my throat, closing his hand, and I'm pointing at Charles very <laughs> courageously, going, no, it was him. He said it. I wasn't. He said it. And Charles is going, I don't know what he's talking about. <laughs> no, he said it. And I'm getting choked. And so I, 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 I punched the guy, and he he released his his hold and by that time the egyptian dishwasher had arrived to escort them it was really a united nations kind of thing going on at the comedy so we had egyptians we had palestinians we had jews that's who we had and uh, in times of trouble they would all work together <laughs> all working together to make borscht it's crazy we had egyptians we had and and our 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 manager would always hire the, the pretty waitresses who would go to bed with him. I'd say, could you hire somebody who's competent? Forget about the, whether they'll go to bed with you. Just hire waitresses who know what they're doing. The most beautiful waitresses there. I love Manny, and I want to talk more about the seller, but I want to talk about, so you're at the top of your game. Yes. The place is selling out over and over again. You're making the door, cash, money, and then you decide, you know what? Ah, the success thing is, you know, a little boring. Let me go to L.A. and see if I can become a writer. What was the impetus to doing that and taking that risk and going to L.A. with nothing? Well, first of all, the, the financial situation was not quite as you described. I'm not entirely at liberty to describe what the financial situation was, but it was less than what you have described. That said... Well, there- you said you started off where you got the door and they got the bar and the food. Now, in success, <sighs> owners can twist people like you and I into a balloon animal. Yes. And your deal gets diminished as success goes on if you don't have a contract, which Bill probably didn't have the uh, the wherewithal to have a contract with the comedy seller. Is that correct? You know, it, it's really incumbent upon me to avoid answering some of these questions, Senator. Um <laughs> But uh, if my attorney uh, could uh, could respond, uh, the thing is, Bill. The great part about uh, being an interviewer <laughs> is when you ask a question and somebody doesn't answer the question, they've actually answered the question. So let's keep going. So let's keep going. And but it's clear to me you've been in this business for a couple of weeks. <laughs> and uh, but things were things were still good. Things were still good. But it was. It was I saw writing on the wall that um, that the orbit that I was enjoying in New York with um, the comedy seller, with uh, being on NBC radio, with doing a couple of uh, specials uh, for VH1 at that time, um, that the orbit was going to decay if I didn't do something. So you come to L.A., but how do you make it here? Oh, that's a great question. Um, what I did was I decided I was going to be a uh, sitcom writer-producer, and uh, I took the uh, Tony Robbins course. I ordered it on television one night, 3 o'clock in the morning. There's a lot of Tony Robbins courses. Which one did you order? Uh, personal Power. Uh-huh. And I can't believe I remember that. And uh, I envisioned myself in the situation that I wanted to 
ultimately be. Was that the mantra of personal power? Like if you took anything out of personal power, what did you take from it that helped you to succeed here? Uh, envision yourself being what you want to become. And I did that. I started writing spec scripts. For those of you who don't know, spec scripts are scripts from existing shows that you write uh, with the hopes that you're going to get a writing job by showing them how well you write for a, an existing show that's a number one show. Right. Nowadays, it's the opposite. Nowadays, nobody wants to read spec scripts. They want to read pilots. In those days, they said, well, we don't care about your pilots because we're just going to hire you to mimic somebody else's voice. So we don't care about what your original voice is. Uh, but I, I wrote spec scripts. And I, when I came to Hollywood, I would go to every showbiz-oriented event that I could and I had my spec scripts uh, copied in envelopes in my bag. I would schmooze people. I would ask them what they did. They would feel compelled to ask me, well, what do you do? I'd say I'm a writer. They would feel compelled to say, oh, I'd love to read your stuff sometime. And I would just hand it to them right there, which nobody ever does. So a fair number of people would read them. And one such person, after just a couple of months here, read a, I wrote a spec pilot called Whoops, I'm the President. And it was about a stand-up comic who runs for president like Pat Paulson and accidentally wins. And they loved it. And they said, come in and talk to us about this. And I did. And they wanted to option it. And I said, okay, great. I'll have my agent call you. I leave. I say, okay, now all I need is an agent. <laughs> so I called my brother who I, and I said, do you have any former law students who are in this business? He knew a guy at CBS. I called him who knew a guy at triad in those days, which was an agency that no longer exists. That was folded into William Morris. Yes, it's no, it's 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 demise had nothing to do with representing me. I just want to make that clear. Uh, I uh, just not so they're correlated, but not causal. And I object to anyone who implies otherwise. And uh, so I sent uh, the agent uh, this script and said, "Could you cover just this deal? Could you just negotiate this one option deal?" And he said, "Well, let me read it." And I sent it to him and he read it and he said, yeah, this is really interesting. Do you have anything else? And I sent him other things and he read them. He said, look, I don't think you should make this deal. I think you should let us represent you and we think we can build a career for you. And then when you develop a pilot, people will pay you a lot of money and you can only lose your virginity once. If you lose it now for what seems like a meaningful amount of money, but really isn't compared to what we're going to make for you in success. What were you turning down? Oh, it, it, it might have, it, you know, it was probably script money. I mean, it, those days, it was, I don't know, $18,000, something like that. Okay. And uh, don't you know, it was one of those rare times that an agent tells you the truth. I trusted him. 
I said, okay, we won't sell it and we'll try to build a career. And so three months after getting here, I got my first job. Uh, that show got canceled uh, very quickly. They didn't even show all of the episodes. It was one of those things. And then uh, Mad About You got made. And the pilot, uh, I knew Paul from New York. And so Paul, I became sort of the rabbi, you know, sort of his guy in, ba in the back room kind of thing. Um, and a lot of comedians, when they create a show, um, they try to, the goal is to try to at least get one baby writer. When I say baby writer, a minimum wage writer that doesn't cost that much that they know is in their camp because there's a lot of other writers that have been hired by the studio, by other showrunners, by other people. So you want at least one person who, if you're not in the writer's room at a time, can tell you what's happening, can share your voice. You can give them ideas. They can go in and fight for it with you. And, uh, and then you can grow. Yes, but I took a different approach with, with this because I knew that Danny, who was running the show. Danny Jacobson. Yes. Um, I knew that it put him in a bad situation if there was a conduit of what was happening inside the the confines, the confidential confines of the writer's room, if that kind of information was getting out, it was not in the best interests of, of the show. And so really right from the beginning, I made it clear to everybody that I was working for Danny, that as the writer on the show, the only way I could help the show was to respect that, um, that wall and any information that was going to come out would have to come from Danny. And Paul's manager got to the point where he would say to Paul, don't ask Billy anything. He's not, if you ask Billy what time it is, he's going to say, listen, ask Danny what time it is. If Danny wants you to know what time it is, then it's okay with me if you know what time it is. So, so um, I think that was served uh, uh, the show. Uh, best that was that was my goal at that point was to serve to serve the show um and uh paul and i wrote a couple of scripts together the first year and then i started writing scripts uh on my own the how many year. episodes did you write alone i think i wrote 20 20 alone and how many writers how many scripts did you write where you shared the writing credit with somebody else maybe five so you wrote 25 of the episodes over the yeah, there were there were two years where I stepped out for a development deal. In those days, they were the studios were giving people crazy development deals. So after four years, I was supervising producer of Mad About You, and people were offering me crazy money for two year deals to come think great thoughts for them, and it was life changing kind of money. And you say okay. And then I sold four of those projects. They did not get on the air. Um, and then I went back for the final season of Mad About You. Uh, you know, it was always, you know, I left on wonderful terms. I used to come back and visit and I returned on wonderful terms. Um, 
it's kind of like what I think what you said in one of your your blog posts about people who make winning more complicated than it has to be. Don't complicate winning. Don't complicate winning. And uh, see, I, re- I read I read your blogs. I can't believe you read this stuff. Yeah, and it's it's absolutely true. You do say, but I've also been the victim, the self victim, of the opposite. I have said things that out of hubris and arrogance. Why don't you share with our audience one story where you did something that totally backfired and really set you back? Ah, there was a producer who was much higher up than I. On Mad About You. Yeah. And there was one episode where um, in season two, I wrote the the, uh, season premiere episode. And at that point, I was, uh, I had just graduated from being a baby writer. I was a story editor. I mean, that's pretty low, low down. It's very unusual for somebody at that level to write scripts, especially the season debut episode. It's like you have to be able to navigate really well and your work has to be like 10 times better than anybody else's to make that happen. Yes, and they and, and things were still good at that point. Uh, um, and so I wrote the, I wrote the, the, the season two, uh, premiere, um, wonderful, uh, piece called Murray's Tale where, uh, Paul's sister-in-law loses the dog and then they find the dog, but it's not the dog. It looks exactly like the dog, but it's a much better dog because <laughs> <laughs> our dog's an idiot. Our dog can't do anything. This dog speaks French. This dog does all all kinds of things. And then by the, the end of the episode, they find the real owners and the owners of the much better dog are much better versions of Paul and Jane. <laughs> so anyway, it was, it was a, a nice, uh, a nice episode. And then the mid season, so variety reviewed that glowingly. Not good for the rest of the writers in the room to hear that and to know that when the young guy is getting the reviews. Uh, yeah. And then in the mid-season, they come back with another review of an episode I wrote called Paul is Dead, where... Which, uh, if you're old enough to remember, uh, uh, if you're my age or older, which I'm, I hope you aren't, <laughs> there was a famous uh, Beatles album, and a rumor was that if you spin the turntable and the record the different way you would hear the words Paul is dead and the rumor that Paul McCartney was dead. So I assume that's what you were referring to. It's exactly what I was referring to. And in this episode, Paul reads an obituary of another Paul Buckman who died, but the bank thinks that he's dead. (laughs) So for all intents and purposes in our information economy, he's now dead. So, um, that got a love letter review from Variety that is still on my wall. Not good with the rest of the writers. Yeah. I thought that it was clear from how communal an experience the writing on a sitcom is. I thought it was clear 
that I did not think that all of the accolades were being rightfully presented to me. And there was a, 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 a producer, um, that, that day when that came out, I kiddingly, kiddingly, I promise you, I have said things that were, that have been arrogant. This was not one of them. Kiddingly, I, I said, yeah, you know, when you write these things yourself, really, uh, all the, you know, something like that. Not taken well, not taken well. And that was. What did he say? He didn't say anything, but that was the beginning of a rift that, um, that uh, I wish uh, uh, I had not catalyzed. Uh, I thought it was clear that I wasn't being serious, um, but as even when you're not being serious and you're making a joke, as we all know, comedy is the truth. Well, it it may have been perceived that way. It wasn't a, it wasn't a pleasant rest of that year. How did you clean it up? I don't think that I did. He he left the show, uh, not because of anything I had to do with it, but as the regular churn occurs, he left the show and uh, and things, you know, resumed norm- normalcy. All right. I want to get to a bunch of different things here, a little word association. I'm going to mention some names to you. Oh, God. And I want you to just tell me a story or a little something. <laughs> Nick DiPaolo. So I'm back in New York a couple of months ago, and I have to go to the bathroom. So I go downstairs... And apparently, one of my first clients ever is a, a management client in the early days. Nick DiPaolo. Yeah. So I go downstairs, and apparently I was the third person to cross Nick's line of sight going to the bathroom. And he took exception to this. But I listen, not my first rodeo. So I cro- I'm, I'm crossing the path, and then as I hit that, the bright spot, you know, where everybody can see you. Nick says, um, now this balding motherfucker has to take a shit. (laughs) (laughs) In that lyrical Ralph Waldo Emerson way that Nick DiPaolo has. (laughs) So I just keep going. I go, listen, you know, I mean, I know the score. I know the drill. You know, I'm the one who picked this room for God's sakes. So I go and I take a pee. (laughs) And then I come, come back. And as I'm walking, I hit the bright light again. There was like a, a pause, and I hold my hands up like in surrender, and I go, "Balding cocksucker, come and throw," <laughs> and I and I get a huge laugh, huge laugh, and I just keep going out the room. And Nick tried to to reel the laugh back in. He goes, "Oh no, wait a second, that's not fair. That's Bill Graffin. No, 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 no. He's he's a comedian. No, no. It's a, he's like trying to reel the laugh back in. Uh-huh. And I'm walking up the stairs, going, "No, you can't. No, I got the laugh. It just, <laughs> you know, move on." Paul Reiser. Okay, you're now you're asking me for a story or for a, uh, a, a one word free what, association. No, no, whatever comes to you, story's great. Um, Paul is like a brother to me. Um, Paul is is um, uh, a a a kindred spirit in uh, in many ways. He is one of those 
one of your blogs talks about how uh, stand-ups are often uh, different off stage as on stage. He's the same guy. He is the same menschy, smart, concerned, uh, funny, smart guy off stage as on stage. There's there's not a lot of difference. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, you you have certain people that you. Um, that you uh, collect in in your life who you know that they are you know one of the one of the pillars and uh, he has has and, and continues to be uh, one of those Ray Romano uh, funny again menschy guy who uh, we we just had we just had lunch the other day. Um, we haven't seen each other in several years, and uh, he and John Manfrolati. Do you know John? Of course, great comedian. Great comedian. Uh, one of those guys that uh, that you you go. How is this guy not famous? Which is something that attitude. Oh. Is that what it is? Attitude and navigation and huggability and lovability. He chose the path of edge and comedy that had a real driving force of, I'm not going to say anger, but but edge to it, which created the fact of a character on stage that wasn't as huggable and lovable. And as you know, huggable and lovable wins the race more than not. There's people who can win the race by not being huggable and lovable, and we all know those people like Dennis Leary or people like that who've done it, but it's harder to do. That is so smart, what you just said. It is so, it is, boy, if if there's a stand-up listening to this, uh, and hopefully there's more than one, <laughs> that's, yeah, that is something to take to the bank. And Thanks, man. if that is... to. It, witness the fact that Ray, who has enormous huggability, and if you can combine, as he has, huggability and great material and great skill and being funny, uh, wow. And, and all of it. And John Manfrolotti, I never had a bad thing happen to me with him. I always liked him. I always had a great relationship with him. But I think if John Manfrolotti... And uh, Ray Romano were sitting on the couch here and we were put a truth serum in both their veins. And we would say, okay, which one of us is more lovable and huggable? <laughs> and I love John. <laughs> but I'm just saying how it is. Like when you navigate, it's like Kevin Brennan was a tremendous comedian in New York City. Just so great. Neil Brennan's brother. But he always had that thing, that edge and that angst. And it was like, you know, it came out on certain occasions where he'd complain to somebody about something or, you know, in passing, talk to a comic and say, ah, this fucking crowd sucks or this is... And Ray Romano would just walk through, like, didn't matter what happened. There was never a word, not one word that you would ever hear out of his mouth that was negative about any... He could go on stage and die a miserable death and... He'd say, how was the crowd? And he'd say, well, tonight maybe wasn't my night, but I'm sure some people will get him. 
Whereas people like the John Manfrolatis and the Nick DiPaolo's and and uh, the Alan Habies would get up and say, this fucking crowd sucks. And that's the kind of angst and whatever that made them great. I, I just, even, I would just say <laughs> that my entire uh, experience of, of John and Havy, who was hilarious and, and still is, I just haven't incredible seen him. Incredible talent. Incredible talent. Um, ha, it just has always been positive. God. Uh, let's go on. Dave Attell. The ver- first of all, hilarious. Uh, the very first joke Dave Attell told at the Comedy Cellar, it was an audition night. There were maybe six people there. He goes on stage, and his first joke, uh, so epitomized his point of view uh, that he has kept to this day. I knew right then that he was not going to be a big regular at the cellar for a while because this point of view was very hard to sustain in the cellar in those days. His joke was, he didn't even say good, good evening or anything, none of those niceties or anything. He's, his first words were, the thing about having sex with a horse. <laughs> and already I'm crying laughing. I, cry, I don't care where you go, but that's how you start? <laughs> the thing about having sex with a horse is that you always have a ride home after. <laughs> And I'm crying laughing. <laughs> and I knew this is a guy with a really strong point of view. I knew exactly what the point of view was. I knew it was hilarious. And I knew that it was very hard for this particular room to sustain that. You can't, you know, do an eight o'clock show on a Saturday and have that be your third guy up or, or, or something. But I knew that he would. I know he was likely to have a, a big career. The late Bill Hicks. Did not have much to do with with Bill Hicks for a similar kind of reason. You know, Havy was the only guy, and I, I, I don't want to get into a thing about whether Manfrelati worked that side of, of, of the spectrum, um, because to me, not, but... Havy was the only guy who could work the cellar and and take that kind of edginess and still kill in that club. Usually in that club, especially in those days, positive, high energy is what worked, uh, what worked best. Um, Bill Hicks was uh, um, not huggable really his his stuff was very thoughtful and you know he was he was a Lenny Bruce descendant and again that wasn't really what the club was about got it so you would you never booked him I think we booked him a few times I used to have this was the this is what I uh I I used to do with your club and uh, something that I learned from the former president of Fox Broadcasting, Sandy Grushow, contrarian programming. So I would have Bill Hicks headline my shows. 
I didn't care if he walked half the crowd. I would have Chappelle there before you guys ever booked Chappelle. Jay Moore, when you wouldn't book Jay Moore. I figured out, hey, if I'm going to get people in my club, I got to do something different than they're doing. And that's Charlie Barnett I would have at my club almost every weekend. God, one of the yes. greatest street performers of all time. So I would try to do a different tack to get the kids. Um, and for some reason, it worked for uh, a while. Anyway, let me keep going. Uh, Bill Maher. Bill Maher was uh, as good uh, when he was 23 uh, as he ever as he ever was. He he smart, funny, even in those days would wear a sport coat. He was 23. It was good evening, ladies and gentlemen. And he was ready for Carson right then. I mean, he, he you know. Uh, I'm half Catholic, half Jewish, and, uh, you know, when go to confession, I say, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. I believe you know Mr. Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, that was the nature of his material even then at 23. So he, uh, much like Provenza, he was a savant. He knew exactly what he was doing right away. Helen Hunt. You know, I recently spoke at my temple, and... Um, Somebody asked me when uh, when you go to heaven, what do you think God is going to uh, say to you? And I said, "What is Helen Hunt really like?" It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty sure that's what God is going to ask me. Um, Helen is, uh, you know, look. In addition to having, you know, all kinds of deserved awards, uh, tremendous professional. Uh, knows exactly what she's doing, and uh, and suffered me greatly. Uh, there were there were times where I was. Uh, I remember one episode I, I wrote called "There's a Puma in the Kitchen," which required a cat uh, as a guest star to do many things. And she once she walked by as we were rehearsing the cat. We were throwing a cat up in the air off of a boogie board. Don't ask me why. And she, it was one of those things where she just, she walks past, she sees this, and then she does that comedy walking backward into the frame. And she looks at this and she said, Billy, um, were you just throwing a cat up in the air off a boogie board? And I said, no. She said, okay, I didn't think so. Okay. <laughs> she walked away. Um, she was at my wedding and uh, she's been, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, I can't believe she's in my life. I can't believe, you know, this kind of person that was at my wedding. Rita Rudner. Wow. Uh, great joke writer, great joke teller, a work ethic like nobody's business. In those days, she would have composition books, you know, those black and white composition books that we used to have before they invented whatever it is now. And she used to just write these one-liners. I mean, it was like, it was like she was beautiful. She was a former dancer on on Broadway, even. Um, and here was this former dancer, gorgeous girl, writing one-liners, and writing them not like when they occurred, but she had notebooks full of them. So. The you know, the kind of real craftsman. 
I think she put the same kind of energy that she did in becoming a dancer into writing jokes and tremendous joke teller. John Stewart. Wow. Well, you know, that's to me, that's uh, the whole package to me. Uh, I'm not saying there aren't people that are, you know, greater or better or whatever. Maybe there are. But to me, that's Mantle and Maris and Hank Aaron rolled up into one. Um, he he had a strong point of view right from the very beginning. I forget what jokes he opened with, but the first night that he was at the cellar, uh, there were, again, just a smattering of people, and he got nothing. He just died a horrible death. It was an audition thing. And I said to him afterwards, I said, you know, John, I never ask anybody to come back, but would you come back tomorrow? And the only thing I'll ask you is hold the microphone, because he didn't hold the microphone. He let, it, he, he, he let it sit in the stand. I said, just hold the microphone from now on. And he did. And when I saw him do that, that's when I got invested in him. It's really weird, these little things, because little things point to bigger things. So here was a guy who was not so rigid that he wouldn't take the suggestion. And over the course of the next few weeks, instead of being a pure monologist who just stood at the microphone, because he was holding the microphone now, it was possible for him to move. And by moving, now it was, in addition to being possible for him to move, he started moving on purpose. And now it wasn't a recitation of jokes he was remembering. Now it was becoming a performance. Now it was becoming in his body. Now he started to prowl this little tiny stage and he was working one side of the room versus the other. He was becoming spontaneous. Um, and then what I did with John, I've never done for anybody. I, I said, look, I want to go home at midnight. I don't want to keep the room open. You know, I don't want, I don't, I want the room to be open, but I don't want to be here after midnight. You take the show, you MC the show and you bring up whoever is on and keep the room open as long as you want and do as much time as you want. And if, you know, you, you only do a minute and you bring up the next guy, that's fine too. And he he later... And that's where Late Nights at the Comedy Cellar started. That is where Late Nights at the Comedy Cellar started. And he uh, developed and honed what he does through having that kind of stage time without being judged every night. And Manny used to used to yell at me, why are you giving John uh, weekend spots? You know, I'd give John like really like I'd squeeze him onto a show. So we'd have in the beginning, I'd have four guys who were really strong and I'd squeeze John in second or third, knowing that I'd have two strong people afterwards. And and Manny would say, why are you putting him on in, in, in Saturday night? And I said, you know, Manny, sometimes we have to feed back. We have to invest 
in the system. And six months from now, this guy's going to be a monster. Just, just watch what happens. If we just give him, he'll grow into these spots. And he did. And, um, Later, he, he was asked, one of his coming out parties, when people started becoming aware of him, they were looking for somebody to open for Paul Provenza. Uh, he was going to do an HBO special. And they were looking for somebody to open just to get the crowd warmed up. And they came down and I said, I got the guy. And I gave John a great spot and I told them, this is the guy. And they saw him and they booked him for that. And when they booked him for that, I said, and I, and I probably owe, owe Paul an apology, uh, but I said to John, I said, listen, um, they're going to want you to warm the crowd up, you know, and do that. And yeah, certainly do that. But you go out there and you stomp on the place. Don't hold anything back. This is your coming out party. Everybody in show business who cares about comedy is going to be in that room. You go out, and if you can leave nothing, leave nothing. Go out there and just crush the place. And he went out, and he crushed the place. And then Provenza had the kind of experience that he gave me 20 years prior in college. He had to follow that. And it all comes full circle. It all comes full circle. And he did. And Provenza, you know, went out and did great. But John, uh, really, I think that was his coming out party when people became aware of who is this guy? Because who knows, who in the world knows the guy who's opening for the guy who's going to do the the special? They know when you are more prepared and you're more focused to pick off the person who's more comfortable up there. As Dion Warwick said, you know, it was the first act on the Apollo, and uh, I was just hoping I'd do a good job. And one of the most famous singers in the world uh, came up to me and said, uh, oh, no, girl, you're headlining this show. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm opening this show. I'm No, you're not, girl. You're going to go on like you're the headliner. This is your show, and all the rest will follow, and it did. So final roundup, Bill, uh, what's your biggest disappointment in show business? Wow. My biggest disappointment in show business. I know what it is. I did a, 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 uh, uh, I did a show for Showtime uh, called Prior Offenses. Based and on Richard Pryor. Based so. on Richard Pryor's stuff. And Eddie Griffin was the Richard character. Had you met Richard Pryor? Yes. Um, and I did both of these projects. I did the last two projects of Richard's life while he was alive. And I used to go over to his house and um, he was still in there. It was really sad. He, you could still make him laugh to the extent that he was physically capable of laughing. He really enjoyed listening to me complain about my rich white married life. You know, he he thought, you know, listening to well-off Jews complain was really amusing to him. And and I knew that. So I used to play that up. But we did this. Uh, we did this. And it was a it was a pilot. Um, it was one of the best things I ever did. And it tested really well. But they bought Barbershop, the series, as the show for that niche that year. And um, 
I think it could have been something really special. That was that was my <clears throat> that was my disappointment. Well, Eddie Griffin, huggable and lovable, win the race. And Eddie Griffin is a guy who can be huggable and lovable when he wants to be, but if he were sitting here, he would even admit to the fact that he has his demons, and just like Pryor did. And sometimes network presidents and people at the studios, they want to feel safe when they're spending millions of dollars. Your show could have been better than the barbershop show, but they had the better paycheck and more millions of dollars on Eddie Griffin. And maybe at the time they were thinking that maybe this isn't the the way to go because we don't know if this guy is going to hold it all together. Again, really smart things to say. I never, I never considered that. This is why you're Barry Katz. <laughs> no, honestly, this is why you're Barry Katz because you know certain things that don't solve problems, prevent problems. You don't have to solve problems if you don't have problems. If you prevent problems, there's no need to solve them. And and that kind of insight presented at various stages of a project can uh, change the trajectory so that it leads to different outcome. It's like a little pool of water on top of a mountain. If by the time you get to the bottom of the mountain, you know, five degrees off one way or another doesn't look like much when it's just a little pool at the top of the mountain. But as you follow that path down the mountain, by the time you get to the bottom, those are miles apart in terms of the outcome. Eddie Griffin is, I mean, if you see Eddie Griffin perform, I mean, it just, it's it's unbelievable what this guy does on stage. And if you see this guy acting in anything, it's amazing what he can do as an actor. It's just sometimes there's things in a person's life as an artist that they seep through and, and you can't, you know, sometimes you just don't even know where they come through or, or there's an energy that comes through that lets people know that, hey, maybe I don't feel as safe around this. Like another example of this might be, I mean, you mentioned Bill Hicks at the Comedy Cellar. You know, when Bill Hicks went on, you didn't feel safe, but that was the whole thing that he wanted to portray or Cat Williams. When you book Cat Williams, you're getting a guy who's unbelievably brilliant, a guy who can do anything but unpredictable. And it's a, it's a risk. And it, you know, and, and that's what I talk about complicating winning. And it's like some people purposely do that. Like, you know, talk about Lenny Bruce in the early days or the people I mentioned. And some people don't do it purposely. It just happens and they don't realize they're doing it. But when people are writing checks for millions of dollars, you have to make them feel safe. But I want to keep going here. I just want to say that all of the people that you have just mentioned are people that I have had nothing 
but warm. Oh my uh, goodness gracious! I you don't were, know you were where like, you were like the Mother Teresa of 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 people in this. Come on, man. Let's 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 get real here. Jesus Christ! I have by the by the time we were done with that shoot. I'm not saying you didn't have a good experience. I'm just saying that there's there's just an energy. But let's keep going. Yes, you're you're absolved. Everybody's wonderful. You're the great. Every relationship you've ever had in life is perfect, except for your marriage, and it's all. No, what are you talking about? My marriage is fine. What are you saying? How to get dragged into this? My God, your poor wife. What you said about her. When did I say anything? <laughs> I've said nothing but but the but good things. Oh, for God's sakes! Yes, what else? Yes, now yes. Who who screwed me? <laughs> your proudest moment. My proudest moment when I was getting screwed. Is that no, your question? Your proudest moment. Proudest moment. The proudest. <laughs> the proudest moment of people who've done me wrong. No, your no. proudest moment in show business. My proudest moment in show business, I think, was, ah, wow, wait, wait, Uh, boy, I think it was, I think that, that variety review of Paul is Dead, it was a uh, real public acknowledgement that this crazy thing that I had taken this huge risk in order to do was being validated. And last question, what advice do you have for the young person growing up in 165th Street in whatever town they're in, in a poor family or whatever they're coming from, whatever background, could be any background, to get from nothing to be a great comedian and also to be a great writer, producer, executive producer? Well, first I would say only get into show business if you can literally not breathe unless you're in this business. This is a business that um, attracts people with issues and gives them many, many more intense issues. Uh, If you can imagine yourself doing anything, horticulture, agriculture, um, doctor, lawyer, coding, anything, if you can imagine yourself being happy, doing anything else, for God's sakes, please do do that. If you're still listening, um, if you insist on being uh, in this business, the people who win are the people who work the hardest. Uh, Talent really helps, but unless you're dealing with an objective metric like people are laughing audibly or people are not laughing audibly. There are a lot of places to hide in this business. Everything is subjective. You know, you read a script, unless it's, you know, something amazingly brilliant, it's all a matter of opinion. Um, So it becomes, yes, take your skill, 
work harder than anybody else, which you'll only be able to do if you legitimately love this. That's the thing. You can't outwork somebody who loves it because they're going to be doing it 24-7, not because they have to and not because they're trying to be careerist about it, but it's because who they are. So if you think you can compete with that because you are that, then that's one thing. It's like sometimes I teach writers and people will say to me, um, well, you know, I have a hard time, you know, getting down to writing and I procrastinate and I, I, and I am, because I'm from New York, I'm not loath to say it is possible you're not a writer. One of the behaviorally, one of the things that writers do is they write. So if you find that it's hard to find time to write, it's possible you're not a writer. You're something else that's equally good. Um, so at the core monetize your passion do what you love doing and then be clever about how you apply it in the market the economy is so varied there's usually a niche for anything whether you like horses or flowers or wine or comedy it doesn't matter whatever it is you would do for nothing because all of us started out doing this for nothing if you would do something for nothing do it for nothing and then get clever about how do you monetize that and if you do that, you will wind up outworking other people. And then you will quickly learn also that your parents lied to you. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And, uh, but if you meet a lot of people and then can deliver so that you add value to their lives, you'll discover that you will end up knowing a lot more people. Fantastic. Bill Grunfest. Barry Katz. Thank you so much. Thank this was you, amazing. Barry. What a historical <laughs> tutorial on comedy and writing and what it takes to be a good man and have a happily married situation. This has been fantastic. Thank 50, you so much, man. I'm going to go out and rent Fifty Shades of Grey right now. <laughs> <laughs> And as always, uh, thank you for listening to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame you get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same Pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune.
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.